morning, good afternoon, and good evening. My name is Sir Meerkat, and welcome back to the Moto Meerkat channel, and welcome to another episode of the Chatterbox podcast. Now, I've got so many incredible people coming up on the Chatterbox podcast. I've got them all lined up, but I'm not too sure who will have been in last week's episode or who's going to be in next week's episode. But at the moment, that doesn't really matter because today we're talking to a very, very interesting man, a gentleman who has had a very impressive racing career, to say the least, becoming the first race winner with type 1 diabetes in IndyCar and a winner of the Daytona 24 Hours. Please welcome Charlie Kimball. How are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing absolutely wonderful. How about yourself? I'm doing fantastic, mate. All the better to be speaking to you, of course. Now, whereabouts are you today? Uh, I'm at home in Indianapolis, my home office, also home gym. You can see my bike back there. Uh, some of my memorabilia on my shelves. Uh, uh, James Hinchcliffe helmet, a Scott Dixon visor, some Pacers basketballs. There's a couple of baseballs back there signed by some baseball greats. Uh, my LA Dodgers, big LA Dodgers fan being from California, won the World Series last year, but uh, Tommy Lasorda, longtime LA Dodgers manager, Hall of Famer, uh, passed away recently. And I've got a Dodgers hat signed by Tommy at the Indy 500 a few years back, uh, back in like 2012, 2013. So that's one of my more special pieces. Um, I've got a Billie Jean King tennis racket up there and some other really fun stuff. Wow, that's awesome, man. That's awesome. Quite the collection there. I'm sure a lot of people will be very, uh, very, very jealous of that uh, of that collection. I can't say I'm particularly knowledgeable on American sports, so those names have kind of passed over my head, but I'm sure some people are going, wow, like that. that is quite incredible. But um, what have you been doing over the past sort of weeks, months to kind of keep yourself busy? Obviously, COVID's all kind of still going on at the moment. So what have you been, what have you been getting up to? Yeah, trying to be really careful staying at home. Uh, my wife and I are definitely conscious of not being uh, by not or conscious of being part of the solution by not being part of the problem. So we've been really yeah. careful, haven't left a whole lot, haven't traveled a whole lot. Um, still going to the gym, training pretty intensely. Uh, we have two young kids, so they seem to go nonstop. Uh, man, I wish I had their horsepower because they <laughs> just their endurance is is unbelievable. Um, but they also sleep really hard for a good 12 hours a night. So I wish I could do that as well. Yeah, still. I was say. <laughs> but it, uh, they've kept us busy. The holidays were great here. Um, there's snow on the ground here in Indianapolis. So I'm nice. wishing and hoping for warmer weather and a little more sunshine. This, uh, this California kid needs his solar battery charge for sure. <laughs> Need to catch some more rays. Yeah, I mean, at least you've got snow. Like, snow's quite nice. In, in Cardiff and Wales, it's yeah. just raining all the time. So, really, really horrible. But, um, yeah, thank you very much for giving up your time to speak with me today. It's very kind of you. And I thought we'd just have a bit of a chat, sort of, all about yourself, really. About your, your racing career and just your kind of life in general. How you made it to where you are today. And uh, recounting some of your successes. So we'll start back where most people kind of start out in motor racing, in go-karts, of course. Can you talk us through how you got into go-kart racing? I'm kind of assuming it was through your father, Gordon, who was, if people don't know, an engineer in IndyCar and Formula One. So as I said, I'm assuming it was probably him that got you into it, but can you tell us a little bit more? Well, it's inter it's a kind of an interesting story in that he... I don't think intended for me to get into racing at all. Um, he grew up in a farming family in California. Um, in fact, my sister and I are, I think, sixth generation farmers in our county where we're from in Southern California. And so he grew up on the farm and, and growing up, he spent more time, found he was spending more time in the farm shop working on equipment and tools than he did um, doing other things around the farm. And so he had a go-kart that he used to drive around the farm and on the ranch and dirt roads and things like that. Well, when he went to college, his younger brothers used it and it, it got stored and kind of fell into disrepair. So for Christmas one year, as a Christmas present, my parents gave me that go-kart full of cobwebs and dirt and grime and oil with the idea that my dad and I would spend the time working on it together. This was when we were back in California, we were living in the States again, uh, having been born and grown, 
grew up at least the first seven, eight years of my life in Europe. I came back to the U.S., came back home to California and worked on the go-kart to rebuild it and get it back up to spec. And we tore it all apart and got it beat blasted and powder coated and found an engine for it. And it was my first real foray at eight, nine, 10 years old, well, I guess eight, eight years old to the mechanical side of life. You know, my dad is a mechanical engineering, loved it, had a lot of aptitude for it and being taught by him about that sort of thing was great. But we went down to a go-kart shop in LA uh, called Pitts Performance. And I walked in, we went down to pick up a seat for it and try out a couple of different seats and walked in and saw my first ever racing go-kart and thought that looked like a lot of fun. Um, and that was probably in March or so uh, after getting the, the go-kart in Christmas at Christmas, March, went, got a seat for it. And it wasn't until August or September that I really was able to convince my parents that it wasn't just going to be a flash in the pan because, you know, kids, they're, it's like, oh, I want that toy. And then five minutes later, I want that toy. And well, for me, the fact that I pushed for it for six months and was willing to, you know, do odd jobs around the house and, and cut lawns and do some other things to help try and raise some funds to be able to buy this go-kart. Um, I think showed them that it was something I was serious about. Uh, and so we bought it and we used to go to Jim Hall's cart track in Oxnard, California, right down by the beach. And we'd put it in the back of my dad's ranch pickup and we'd go to go to the go-kart track, practice Saturday afternoon, um, come home and then go back out on Sunday and race. And and for a while, it was just something we did for fun. And then it got pretty serious and we got a trailer and then we got a bigger car to tow the trailer. And then we got a bigger trailer and we had more go-karts. And by the end of it, you know, we were racing three, maybe four times a month all across California into all the way out to Las Vegas and Nevada and Phoenix and Arizona, you know, I did races in Canada, the Barry Grand Prix, north of Toronto, all the way across on the East Coast. Um, never really any international go-karting, but spent a lot of time and a lot of weekends away from home uh, at the go-kart track with my dad. And it was always that he and I would work on him during the week, and then we'd go and race him on the weekends. Uh, and so it was really about the time with him and, and still to this day, I really treasure that time we had traveling, driving around, staying in hotels, going to the racetrack and working on the go-karts together. I learned so much about racing and engineering, just soaking it in and absorbing it from the vast knowledge that my dad had. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. He clearly had a lot of experience and, uh, yeah, that's a serious experience for yourself. Yeah, as a child to be able to go around to all those different places and do all that karting. That's just awesome, man. Awesome. I'm very jealous. Now, I saw when I was researching for this little chat with you that you were actually born in Chertsey in England. Is that correct? That's right. Yep. I was born in Surrey, uh, in Chertsey. My dad was a design engineer at McLaren, uh, Formula One at the time. Uh, okay. So his career arc. Uh, he went to university, got his degree in mechanical engineering, and in the summers would, would sweep the shop floors at Dan Gurney's All-American Racers in Southern California and literally started in the mailroom and worked his way up. Um, helped John Barnard design uh, the 1980 and 82 Indy 500 winners with Gordon Johncock and Johnny Rutherford, um, the Chaparral 2K the sort of yellow submarine car, as well as the Wildcat. Um, and then from knowing John Barnard, got uh, connected and I think went either to the McLaren design office or the Guilford technical office with John and started doing design work uh, in the UK and moved over there. My mom was pregnant with me and um, shortly after they moved to, to England. I was born in Chertsey and we lived in Europe until I was about seven and a half or eight years old, um, maybe eight, even eight and a half years old, and spent a year in Italy when he was technical director at Ferrari, their F1 program, 
And then we That's went awesome. back to the UK. Um, you know, he race engineered world champions and designed parts that are the foundation for a lot of stuff that's used to this day, both in IndyCar and Formula One. Um, and he'll never talk about his history. He's my mom's favorite joke about engineers. Uh, it's not my dad's, but my mom's is, how do you know an engineer is talking to you? And he's looking at your shoes instead of his uh, because he is, but he's always looking, always watching and always learning. And I think yeah. that, you know, he always wanted to, to do design projects that would revolutionize things um, and would be real progress uh, for the parts and the pieces all the way down to wheel nuts, um, which is, has been a real sort of guidance for me in my racing career. Um, is it's about doing it right, not just doing it. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. That's a, wow. He sounds like an an incredible man. Yeah, and the fact that you got to travel to all those different places, like yeah, working with Ferrari. Wow, that is that is quite incredible. But um, I just brought up the the Surrey thing because Chertsey is about ten or fifteen minutes from my house back at home. So I just thought that was quite funny. Um, but uh, it, yes, it is. Yeah. Who else? I was trying to remember. I can't remember if it was Max Chilton or or somebody else, you know, one of the teammates over the years in in sort of my racing career. And we were talking, and I was like, yeah, I was born at St. John's in Chertsey. And they were like, I was born at St. John's in Chertsey. <laughs> and it like just, you know, these two drivers colliding on the other side of the world. And the fact that we were born in the same hospital, the same town, little town in, in Surrey was really yeah. small world moment. Yeah, so odd. Yeah, you would not have been able to tell from your accent. Yeah, really. I wouldn't have put you uh, as being born in Surrey. But there we are. So as you said, you were sort of growing or you were growing up around all this racing environment. So it was then I'm assuming that you moved over to America sort of before you started all this karting stuff. And then you, as right. you said, you, you did all the karting stuff. And then what ended up making you move from karting to actually jumping in uh, a proper car or some single seater action? I turned 16 and I got my driver's license. Ah, okay. Um, was, so for my 16th birthday, my parents gave me a two-day test in a Formula Ford, uh, an F1600 uh, in the US. It was uh, an old uh, like Formula Ford with a Ford you know, 1.6 liter um, carbureted engine. And I tube frame chassis and went out and did a couple of days at Button Willow, a small test track just north of north of L.A., and fell in love and like i never felt more alive than those first few laps I, I even to this day i remember pulling down pit lane at button willow thinking all right that's the coolest thing i've ever done and my dad was there that day and he said he could see my smile before i'd taken my helmet off and he knew he calls that day the beginning of the end and and i call that day the beginning <laughs> of the rest of my life yeah yeah that's that's amazing i was gonna say with the formula fords so you're saying it's one of the best moments of your life, finally getting out there on track. And I was going to say with Formula Fords, with the racing, obviously we usually mm -hmm. think of the lower divisions as having the better racing as people are kind of finding their skills and with the lower powered cars as well, allows for kind of better racing. Would you say yeah. that it was in Formula Fords where you had your sort of closest, most fun racing? And if there was a series that you did in kind of your lower uh, divisions that you could do again, which one would it be? Oh, that's a great question. So, well, we should probably talk about like my arc in racing before we talk about yeah. like all of the different, my favorite classes. But I think you're 100% right that the, the Formula Fords, both the 1600 stuff that I did here in the US and then the Formula Ford, the British Formula Ford Championship that I did in the UK for with Team JLR was some great racing and a big part of it is there's no downforce there there were no wings on the cars at that point the tires weren't really high grip and it, it's not super high powered so you're racing sewing machines you know in a version so they're they're very low power you're racing really close they draft really well some of the 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 packs and the groups of cars racing yeah. at places like Castle Coombe and, and yeah. Thruxton and Silverstone, Donington, these, these just incredible big racetracks with pretty small racing cars on them. It was Olton Park as well. I love, love racing there. Great track. Great. Um, 
and being able to do it in a formula 40 really teaches you a lot of racecraft. And I think that, and, and so that was a lot of fun and, and taught me a lot about how to race formula cars. Um, so I did formula Ford. I, I did that test, started racing them the next year, did a lot of testing, moved into F2000. So the year I graduated high school, the year I turned 18 in 2003, I raced the USF 2000 championship. So a two liter car, um, some, some small aerodynamic wings on it. And it was really good racing. We did some racing um, with the champ cars and IndyCar series, uh, some races kind of on our own with other SCCA pro racing stuff. Um, but a lot of great experience, a lot of miles. Again, pretty cost-effective car, a steel tube frame. So if you bend it, you know, a good welder cut the piece out and weld it back in. Um, unlike a, a carbon fiber car that if you have a big crash, you, you know, a lot of times you have to throw it away. So cost-effective wise, mile per dollar, mile per euro, mile per pound, you, you got more out of it. Um, and when I graduated high school, I got accepted to the same university that my dad did for their engineering program but I wanted to pursue my racing career. And so they gave me a two-year deferral and said, you know, if you go and figure out your racing and if it works great, if you're ready to come back to school in two years, we'd love to have you. Um, so I did the British Formula Ford Winter Series. Uh, I've never been so cold in my life as standing at Brands <laughs> Hatch in November in yeah. the pouring, freezing rain. Um, I, I remember cool. literally getting out of the car getting out of the race car, walking through the garage and into the rental car with the heat full blast, wearing all of my gear to try and dry it out and feel my toes again. But did British Formula... Oh, in the summer, a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, um, genuinely. <laughs> also, but, can I quickly say before you move on, I think yeah. you do need to kind of flex what university that was. Oh, yeah, yeah. So my dad went to Stanford University and yeah. I got in... Um, and, and there is a family legacy there. My, my grandfather went, uh, his brother went before he went and served in World War II. Uh, my grandmother's a Golden Spike Award winner from there. My aunt was University Archivist at Stanford. So there is a, a, a bit of a legacy there. Yeah. But it was really cool when they talked about when I was accepted and they talked about the admission class there was, they, they highlighted me as a national go-kart champion. I won seven or eight national go-kart titles. Um, they highlighted a, like a professional rodeo rider, um, a concert violinist, a like prima ballerina plus other athletes. And so it was really cool to be a part of this class, this freshman class getting into this, this university that was so diverse and so unique as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, wow. that's amazing, mate. That's awesome. But I, I, I had to say that because I was, re when I was researching, I saw it with Stanford and you kind of glossed over it. I was like, this man's a smart man. He needs to flex that he was getting into Stanford here. But I guess that kind of, again, showed how much you really wanted this racing, how much you wanted to, to make it at the top of racing that you would even give up uh, an option at Stanford, which was crazy. But would you mind continuing telling us about kind of the junior career and uh, answering the question of if you could do one of the junior series again, which is the one that you would do? Yeah, so I did British, the British Formula Ford Winter Series, fall of 03, um, and then signed with Team JLR, Richard Dean's team, to run the British Formula Ford Championship in 2004. Uh, won a couple of races at Olton Park and um, worked with great mechanics and, you know, great engineers. Paul Haig, who's been around racing for a long time, an incredible Yorkshireman. I've never been called flower more in my life um, and love and absolutely loved, loved the time. And, and, you know, I talked about the value of, of money per mile in the junior formula and formula Ford was so good because We'd race it, I think we raced at 10 or 12 different racetracks, and it was double or triple headers every weekend. And between race weekends, we'd go test on Tuesday at another track and Thursday on another track, and then Saturday, Sunday, have a race weekend at a whole different place. So you got so much experience crammed into these eight or 10 months, and it was so much fun. 
I mean, I was 19 years old living um, in England and figuring out how to pay like a TV tax I, like I, and figuring out how to buy a car and get a driver's license and trains and like, it was awesome. And it was such a great life experience that I think if I look back, I really enjoyed the racing side of Formula Ford and, and all of those different pieces. Um, and from there in 2005, I stepped up to the British Formula Three Championship with Carla. And it was, I mean, it was a lot of fun. Carlin obviously runs top flight cars in everything now from IndyCar down to Formula 3 and, and Formula 4, I think, and a bunch of other stuff. And it's, I think I just heard they signed up for a scooter championship, uh, um, you know, move, branching into two-wheel racing. Mm. But I think British Formula 3 was some of the best racing, most pure, incredible competition that... I've ever done. Um, and I really look back on that year so fondly, my mechanics, the, the engineers, the, the team itself, you know, that was such an incredible grounding for me in semi-professional racing. Um, so I would say, I have to say, you know, formula Ford racing us, UK was probably some of the best education and British formula three, which I don't know that it exists like it did then, but if I could go back, that was the year I'd do over and over again. Because again, you know, 20 years old and living in Europe and we did a couple of, we did a race in Monza, Alvaro Parente and I had a, just an incredible ding dong battle for about three laps at the end of the race. Um, if you can find it on YouTube, it's, it's an amazing race. We'll we went video. to Spa and raced at Silverstone and like, just these great racetracks and had so much fun. Um, and it was, it was a blast. Like that was great racing um, and taught me a lot and, and kind of springboarded me, you know, as the first American in 13 years to win a British F3 race. Um, you know, it was all the way back to, I think Danny Sullivan maybe. And it was her, yeah, it might've been, um, you know, first American to win two races. I, I swept the weekend at Thruxton and it was, it was great. And that springboarded me in 2006 to the formula three Euro series with signature. Um, and that was great. Cause I got to live in Italy and race for a French team and race all across Europe. First American ever to win a formula three Euro series race, uh, that year at Zanvoort. Um, and I actually keep a photo of that up here on my shelf because, awesome. uh, I have, is it Kobayashi and Vettel next to me on the podium. So whenever Sebastian wins a world championship or, a you know, an F1 race, I pull that photo out and be like, Hey, I remember that race. And it was, a, it was this crazy wet to dry Zanvoort race. And it was, it was, a, it was good racing. Um, and then in 2007, I stepped up to the World Series by Renault with Victory Engineering, which was a Carlin sister team at the time. And through the season, it, it was really disappointing results-wise. In fact, um, I look back and think, man, it's probably one of my hardest race result seasons ever. And it turns out in October, I went into the doctor and came out with a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes. Um, and I'd gone to the doctor because I had this skin rash and mentioned I'd been kind of thirsty. Um, and it turns out I'd lost 12 kilos in just five days. Um, Whoa. You know, 25 pounds for those of us here in the U S and yeah. it's a lot. And, and honestly, when I saw that scale number, I thought, okay, there's something broken. Like your scale's wrong, doc. There's no way this is real. Um, but my body wasn't able to use the food I was eating the carbohydrates, the glucose I was eating for energy. And so it was burning my body up to try and stay alive and try and, and find energy. And I was exhausted and it was really affecting my performance on the racetrack. I was making mistakes that weren't typical of me as a driver. And, um, and that was October 16th of 2007. And then 2008, I did a few races with Prema power team in the formula three Euro series funding kind of got a little shaky. And so I moved back to the U S 
spent a couple of years racing in the Indy Lights Championship, uh, sort of AAA to IndyCar. Uh, started a relationship in 2009 with Novo Nordisk, the pharmaceutical company, global healthcare company that makes the insulin that I use to this day to manage my diabetes. And then 2011 was my rookie year in the IndyCar series, made history as the first licensed driver with diabetes to ever race in the Indy 500. Um, 2013, as you said, I was part of a team that won the 24 hours of Daytona, the Rolex 24 at Daytona. Um, so I can never complain about not being on time cause I have a Rolex to, to keep me there. And I do wear it just not very often. Uh, and then in August of that year, I won my first IndyCar race at mid Ohio, um, which was funnily enough, it was sponsored by a, a jewelry store in Ohio. And so I got a second Rolex. So in the span of about eight months, I went from no Rolexes to two, um, haven't gotten one since haven't won one since but was it one on the left hand one on the right hand though it's sometimes not not today you know i've got my not today okay not every day it's i mean it is you know it's not an everyday thing i do wear it though i wear both those watches for different reasons at different times um in fact one of the most if we're talking watches for a second one of the most poignant moments that i wore my rolex 24 um, the Daytona was at Stefan Wilson's wedding. Um, and Justin Wilson had obviously won the 24 hours to Daytona, um, before he was killed in IndyCar and his brother, Stefan and I were on the IndyCar pace car team together and we're reasonably good friends. And, uh, Justin's widow, Julia gave Steph Justin's Rolex to wear on his wedding day. Um, and so there was this great, and, and like he met his wife and started dating his wife while we were all on the pace car team together. And so there's a, I have this great photo of him and his like wedding tux and me in a suit with both of us wearing our silver, uh, Daytonas, which is, is really cool. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah. So I rambled a long, long time there. Um, <laughs> and I figured, and I, I'm sure you have questions and want to circle back, but that I was do indeed. That was a lot of history. No, that was great. That was perfect little sort of synopsis. But yeah, we'll sort of dig into certain aspects of that a little bit deeper. Yeah, but some amazing stories there. And you've clearly done a hell of a lot. Now, a couple of things I wanted to circle back on just before we end the first half of today's podcast was a series, firstly, that you raced in uh, between 2008 and 2009 called A1GP. Now, it's a series that's one of my favorites from the past, and my video covering the downfall of the series is still the most viewed video on my channel as I'm recording this episode. If you guys watching out there haven't yet seen it, I'll leave a little link uh, somewhere on the screen right now for you to go and give that a watch. Now, I know you only did two races for Team USA, but I kind of had to obviously give my video a little bit of a shout out. How did you find that series, the A1GP series? What, uh, how did you manage to get involved with that, and how come it was only two races? Well, so the team manager uh, for A1 Team USA for a while before the sort of Andretti group took it over was an American by the name of Paul Anthony, and he knew me from Alan Docking Racing in British F3. He was engineering in, in British F3, knew about me, and I think I did some like practice sessions. In fact, I have a photo of me in the Team USA fire suit on, let's see, that would have been like October 13th, October 12th of 2007, about three or four or five days before I was diagnosed with diabetes. And that weight, that's how I know I lost 12 kilos in the five days before I was diagnosed because I was weighed at the A1GP race before I went to the doctor the following week. Uh, he called me up and said, yep, I think Buddy Rice and Jonathan Summerton are going to do some of the, the racing, but we get a like a secondary driver to do practice sessions. We'd love to come have you drive the car. Um, and it was, it was a great chance, and it was a lot of fun to be around. It's a great series. I remember Hinge, James Hinchcliffe, um, who I'm really good friends with now and still doing the pit lane reporting along with Team Canada and Robbie Wickens in the car, like – really cool it was it was a lot of fun those events um all over the world in Zhuhai in china and bruno the czech republic and 
And then in the 2008-2009 series, um, I think Andretti had, it was a new car, new chassis, maybe built and developed by Ferrari. You probably remember the details better, but I think it was like a Ferrari design spec car. And Andretti had a driver lined up, maybe one of their professional drivers, I can't remember, to come over. And it was all getting kind of last minute as far as getting the cars ready for the first race in Zandvoort. And the, the driver was like, man, it, I don't even know what's going to happen. I'm not going to travel over there. So I get a call like in the middle of the night. I'm in California at my parents' house. Funding had kind of fallen apart for me. I was working on stuff for Indy Lights for 2009, but I didn't really have anything. Yeah. And in 2000, and, and so that was, would have been like August, September, 2008. I get this call at like three in the morning. I answer my phone. It's like, hey, it's, uh, you know, this is Paul Anthony with Team USA. I want to put you in touch with the Andretti guys because they want to know if you want to come over and do this race. I was on a plane that night out of LAX into London to... Awesome go up to Snet at Snetterton, do the shakedown test on it, go over to Zandvoort and do the first rain, <clears throat> excuse me, the first race in the pouring rain. Um, and it was, it was a blast. Like some of the mechanics on that, they, so they, they tell a story cause they're like their Indy car, Indy lights mechanics. This guy has been around forever. A mechanic by the name of Poppy. He, uh, they go, oh, you know, our, our pro driver's not not coming. And they're like, well, who's going to drive the car? And he's like, I don't know, some guy named Charlie. And so literally anytime, like, I see Poppy, he goes, hey, it's some guy named Charlie. Like, to this day, any of the mechanics of that A1 that weekend, they're like, ah, oh, some guy did a great job. You know, that Mr. Charlie Kimball, he's really good. It was, it was, it was a fun, fun series with, a lot to it. Um, the, the, that car with the paddle shift and the big horsepower, that was a big upgrade over the first version of the A1 car for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a huge upgrade when they tried to change to Ferrari. But yeah, as you said, it was kind of a bit last minute. And I think the whole series was a little bit last minute. Uh, so <laughs> I think that's kind of why it went a bit down down the drain a tad but yeah you had fun in in there at least with the with those powerful cars and you kind of spoken about it a little bit but i wanted to see if you'll give me a little bit more detail on it um you raced uh, all across europe doing this as you say doing uh british uh f4 and f3 euro f3 it was how come you then suddenly changed in 2009 to racing in indy lights and moving back to America, why did you change from doing European racing and then possibly sort of following up through into Formula One? Why did you then change over to sort of Indy Lights and moving up to IndyCar? Well, a big part of it was commercial programming. Um, part of it was the sort of financial and the economic environment here in the US and the global perspective of US companies' uh, involvements and relationships in Europe was changing. I was, I was having trouble getting U.S. companies buying in to investing in a marketing program in Europe because they were just trying to solidify their base here in the U.S. Um, and so it was a big part about the commercial side of things and putting the funding together to be able to go race over there. And part of it was that for years, my dad was really conscious that it's not if you have a big crash on an oval, it's when, um, yeah. and the odds and, and the injuries on an ovals can, on ovals can be really bad. I mean, we've seen that over the years, but the introduction of the safer barrier and some of the energy reduction stuff, the Hans devices, all of those things did a lot to mitigate that risk. And so you put the commercial viability of, not racing in Europe against something, putting something together here in the US, as well as the mitigating of the risk of racing on ovals. And it wasn't a, a, a full oval series anymore. IndyCar at that point was, and still is, this great blend of permanent road courses, street circuits, and ovals. Um, and so being able to mitigate that oval 
injury risk through the advancements in safety and the scheduling side of things um, was really the impetus to come back and race here in the US because I was able to get more traction getting US companies to have involvement in a US marketing campaign. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It's always at the end of the day with motorsports, it always comes down to money, doesn't it? Really? That's always the the stopping well, thing. So so while sports is in the world, in the word motorsports, racing's a business. And I think a lot of people forget yeah. that. And and I, I mean any sport is a business. Unless unless I mean, even like people playing golf on the weekend, not professionally, but like amateur golfers, you still go and pay greens fees and rent a cart and buy clubs. And, you know, it's still very much a business. And and so as a driver, I think the industry of racing has evolved over the last three decades where it used to be that, you know, drivers showed up on Friday, drove the car and went home Sunday and that was it. And, and now drivers are integral parts of the business elements. They are their own brands there. I mean, you look at, I think Lewis Hamilton has done an incredible job of building his brand to make change outside of sport. I mean, I, I talked about early on, I talked about my Billie Jean King tennis racket and I've always admired her because she took what she did in sport and made change in society. Um, and that, you know, for her, it was equal rights, equal pay for men, women, the LBGTQ community, all of those pieces for her using her tennis success to make that change. And I think Lewis has done an incredible job in Formula One on that, but it comes down to being your own brand. Um, man, I can't remember the rapper, but he, one of his famous quotes is, I'm not a businessman, I'm a business man. And it's like, as drivers, we are our own business at some point. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. You guys all sort of, as you say, you're much more of an integral part to the whole team and the whole business, as you say, uh, in 21st century motorsport. But yeah, no, that is that is very interesting. And I like the, uh, I like the quote a lot, mate. But uh, we will start to talk a bit more about your sort of IndyCar success and talk more about your type 1 diabetes diagnosis and how that affected you and of course some fan questions all coming up in part two so if you're out there watching don't go anywhere Welcome back to the Chatterbox Podcast. I'm still your host, Sir Meerkat, and I'm still joined here today by the wonderful Charlie Kimball. Now, Charlie, we ended off part one sort of talking about all your junior career building up, and we finally built up to IndyCar. You joined that in uh, 2011, but it wouldn't be until 2013 where you would have a very, very successful year. Let's firstly talk about your, now I know it came second, but we're going to talk about it first, your IndyCar win at Mid-Ohio. Now what exactly happened in that race that led to you taking the win? And how did it feel to cross the line realizing that you've won? It must have felt pretty amazing. Uh, I mean, you look back and look back at that moment and it's a bit of a blur because there's so much going on that it, I remember it being feeling just so good at the time. Um, and I remember pulling into victory lane and, and my, it was the first IndyCar win for a lot of my mechanics as well. And they, they looked like lost little ducks. They didn't quite know what to do and where to go. And it was, it was great. Um, but a lot of things really led up to that race. You talked about what did it take to win that race. And, and I knew going to Mid-Ohio, we were going to be pretty competitive. You know, Scott Dixon's won a lot of races there. The Ganassi cars have been very competitive there over the years. Um, we'd had a really good test earlier in the year there. And in fact, the year before, I'd broken my hand in a test there and missed 
the 2012 race at Mid-Ohio with a broken hand. Uh, Giorgio Pantano filled in for me, actually. And um, on, so Friday, typical IndyCar weekend, two practices Friday, practice qualify Saturday, warm-up race Sunday. Friday, pretty good practices. I think we were in the top 10 pretty consistently, top seven. Um, and with IndyCar as competitive as it is, if you're within the top 10, you're within a shout of, of a really good result. Um, you know, you're probably off by a 10th or a 10th and a half on a lap time. And then it rained overnight, Friday night, Saturday morning practice, go out maybe third or fourth lap when I'm starting to push as you turn into turn one, which is a fifth gear, 125 mile an hour corner. There's a bridge right over the top of it for the fans to get to the infield. Well, under that bridge was a little damp still. And I spun and backed into the wall at, on the other side of the gravel trap at the exit of turn one. And between practice and qualifying, I was looking out the back of the transporter and there were all crew members from the four different cars that Ganassi ran, all different colored crew shirts working on the car. And, and it was it was a little like poetry in motion. Um, and then we went out and qualified. I think we qualified fourth or fifth, had a really good qualifying and we were talking about strategy and my engineer, they, they'd lengthened the race distance by five laps from 12 to 13. And the fuel mileage in the engines had stayed about the same. So it made it between a two-stop and a three-stop strategy. That crossover point was, people weren't exactly sure where it was. So my engineer said to me Saturday night, he said, do you want to play for a podium or do you want to play for a win? I said, I'm here to win. And he said, yep, me too. (laughs) Do you think you can do qualifying speed laps for all, I think it was 85 or 90 laps. And I said, yep, I believe I can. And he said, okay, then I'm pretty committed early on to doing a three-stop race, which means that we're going to do everything we can to get you out in clear track. And Mid-Ohio is one of the shorter pit lane times pit lane lost times. Long Beach is really long. The Indy GP, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway road course is really long, but Mid-Ohio is one of the shorter ones, a lot like Detroit is. And he said, I think we can make up that time and actually be better based on the guys up front trying to do it in two stops, going slower, but saving fuel. Um, And it worked. And we had a little bit of traffic uh, right before my third stop. So when I did my third stop was up to speed, Simon Pagino came in and it sw- he'd switched to my strategy and he came in and came out on cold tires. Cause obviously in IndyCar, we don't have tire warmers. And I passed him into turn four and drove away. And I think we ended up winning by like nine or 10 seconds. So it was really significant yeah. um, and felt it was great to win not by saving fuel and going slow, but by doing an extra stop and just having really good fast pace all day long. Yeah. Um, and, and I think to me, you know, I look, my middle hair trophy is actually up in a closet, not on display yet. We moved about eight months ago now and haven't, been able to get it out in a, into the display cabinet yet but my middle Ohio trophy is up there and every time I see it I think I remember feeling the appreciation for the teamwork that got me there in qualifying and then the commitment like all in right away hey we're playing to win we're going to three stop early you're going to drop the hammer and go so sweet such a cool story, man. Such a cool story. But as you say, like, kind of not taking any wins away from anyone else, but like a proper win, as you say, like absolutely going for it the whole race. Well, and it but through. at the same time, like a win's a win. Like, oh, of and, and I'm going to pull a random movie quote out for you, but like the Fast and Furious, it doesn't matter if you lose by an inch or by a mile, you lose. Well, if you win, you win by an inch with no fuel or you win by 10 seconds by going fast, it's still a win. No one will ever take that away from you. Um, and, and I think it was funny because I think back to go-kart days and the engine manufacturer in my go-karting days, 
he used to talk about how much he appreciated the the Screaming Eagle Awards more than the Duffies. And I'll explain what those were. So the national championship races in go-karting here in the U.S., the Screaming Eagle was what you got for winning pole. And the Duffies were a replica of Duffy Livingston, one of the the sort of first go-kart racers here in the U.S. that started the the structure and organization of go-kart racing. And he got that for winning the races. Um, And he always used to say that the the pole award was always better than the race award because in the race you know you can have mechanicals where the pole you were absolutely no one can argue you were fastest at that moment um but at the same time i'm still here to win i'm it's not all about qualifying exactly and like you said with um finishing by an inch or a mile someone i spoke to recently on the podcast as well alexander rossi won his indy 500 with the engine off basically and that still counted as a win but he he um, was the one i was thinking about when i said you know if you cross by an inch with no fuel yeah exactly yeah with no fuel but he is also only in the past few days a week or so has won the 24 hours of daytona something you have done as well earlier in that same year as you won the race at mid-Ohio. Can you again talk us through that whole experience of winning such a prestigious race and also doing it alongside some pretty awesome drivers as well? In the first time I'd ever driven with a roof. Yeah. That was, to me, that was the biggest thing. I, I remember two really distinct things from that event. The first one was racing a car with a roof. Like I'd never done that. Go-karts, formula cars. I'd never raced anything with anything up here. And and it was so weird to have a car over here. Like single seaters, you're middle of the car. There's like equal, but the Daytona prototype, it's like there's car over here. And it was very strange. And it didn't take long to get used to it because it was obviously a well-sorted car, really competitive, really fast. And I, I had a few, well, a couple really good guys to learn from, um, you know, in that same car was Scott Pruitt, who has raced NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, one of the most successful Rolex 24 Daytona drivers ever. Um, Memo Rojas, who had been teammates with Scott for years and had, had really elevated the game. A uh, guy by the name of Juan Pablo Montoya, who at one point had two Indy 500 wins out of three starts or four starts. Like the percentages were absurd. Like one of his first time with Ganassi went raced in formula one wins at Monaco comes back and second time doesn't, but third time wins the Indy 500 again with Penske. And it's like, and it's funny because Juan has, I, I love racing against and with Juan, um, but he can be very uh, aggressive is maybe (laughs) not the right word because, but he doesn't take anything from anyone. And and you always know exactly where you stand with Juan. He'll come up and swear at you or he'll come up and tell you that was a lot of fun. That was great racing. Cause that's all he is. He's just a pure racer. And I always appreciate that. Even if I didn't always agree with where I stood with them uh, and being teammates with those three, they had a lot more experience at the Rolex. They had a lot more experience driving at night. They had a lot more experience using headlights, using traffic and managing traffic. And literally I saw my job as driving for a couple of stints, a few stints in the middle of the night so that they could get more rest to set up, they're the start sequencing of drivers to get into the night, to save brakes, save tires. And then that would then set up the finishing order to be able to run right up till the end of that, that 24 hours and have the right person in the car at the right time to go win the race um, and take care of the car so that uh, it was in one piece and competitive when they got back in the cockpit. Nice. Sorry, I was just laughing at Juan Peace 
there. Yeah, the, the wop just... piece. I like that. I, yeah. I didn't intend for that to be uh, a pun, but as a dad, I love the dad jokes. That was great. I really like that. I love that. But again, an incredible um, feat of success there from you, sir, and some an incredible achievement to have on uh, on your repertoire. But finally, we will talk about, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but about your diagnosis in 2007 of having type 1 diabetes. Now, when I was researching for this, I came across something which I found very, well, fascinating, to be honest. I was reading that you race with a continuous glucose monitor, which wirelessly transmits data to your steering wheel dash. And if your glucose level falls during a race, you can then drink sugar water to to bring it back up. I thought that was so cool. Can you talk us through how that diagnosis has changed your life, both uh, in regards to racing and also your off-track activities as well? I mean, it it changes everything. Everything I do during a normal day, everything I put in my body, everything I eat, everything I drink, any activity I do, um, I'm thinking about what my blood glucose is, what I want it to be, when I last took my mealtime insulin, what what I plan to do the rest of the day, what stress looks like. I, I mean, I think I've learned more about my stress response in the last year during a global pandemic due to my diabetes than I ever had before because I hadn't faced a global pandemic as somebody with the diabetes before. And so all of those things work in my mind on what I do next. And, and I think for me, it's beneficial to have that engineering mindset, that, that mechanical leaning brain when it comes to diabetes management. Because I look at it kind of as a balance scale, you know, the, the old scales. And, and on one side, you have things that make my blood glucose go up, stress, dehydration, carbohydrates, uh, illness. The other side, things that bring it down, insulin being the first one hydrating, low impact exercise, um, rest, being, you know, relaxed, all of those things. And and so that side, it's about, okay, I'm going to put, you know, I'm going to have a sandwich for lunch and that's this many carbohydrates. So I need to put this much insulin on this side to keep it balanced. But oh, wait, I'm going to do a long run, which is going to bring it down later. So I need maybe a little less insulin to stay middle of that road, if that makes sense. Um, And how that translated into the race car, you talked about my continuous glucose monitor. And I think it comes down, just like in racing, to have the right information and the right tools. Um, Diabetes management is very much the same way. And I, I talk about it being a team sport, just like racing is. And and that information, the first appointment I had with my endocrinologist shortly after I was diagnosed, um, she's out of Los Angeles, has treated Olympic athletes, mountain climbers, endurance, triathletes. It's, you know, A-list celebrities. She's, she's seen them all. And she said, you'd be a perfect candidate for a continuous glucose monitor. And I I didn't, I was like, well, what's that? And it's evolved over the years and the, the technology and the sensors have gotten better but it's essentially still a sensor that I wear where there's a wire injected under the skin into fatty tissue, interstitial fluid, and it transmits a reading to a display. Um, And it now transmits a reading right to my phone and my watch. So when I'm traveling, my wife can keep up with what my blood glucose is doing. So when I'm running through an airport, she can make sure that I'm not going low or I'm not going high and, and make sure that I'm staying on track. Um, and then on the racetrack, that readout actually plugs into the car's data system. So on my steering wheel, on my electronic dash, I have speed, lap time, oil pressure, blood sugar, water temperature, gear, my car and body data right there together. And the cool thing is once it's in the car's data system in an Indy car with telemetry radios, my engineers on the timing stand in pit lane can keep track of it. Um, because you know, back to one of your first questions in the first half of the podcast, you talked about what some of the best racing I've, I've enjoyed is. And I talked about Formula Ford without Arrow. I talked about British F3, but I think IndyCar racing on some of the high banked ovals, racing at Texas and Kentucky, Iowa, um, 
even the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, there are times you run side by side, lap after lap after lap. And I, I don't want to have to be looking at my dash to make sure my blood sugar is right. And so having that extra set of few sets of eyes from the engineers on the timing stand has been really valuable. Um, and my doctor said, okay, well, this is how you read it. But if you're going low, we want to be able to get you some sports drink or some sugar water or some fruit juice or something to get it back up. She said, you know, my cyclists have two drink bottles, one with water and one with orange juice or one with water and one with Gatorade and extra sugar, or, you know, some concoction to get glucose up quickly. And in Indy Lights, the first time I raced with the, this glucose and the, the drink bottle, I just had a drink bottle full of glucose rich fluid. Now in IndyCar, two, three, three and a half, four hour races, when you're talking about 500 miles on a hot Memorial Day Sunday in May at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, it's important to be able to hydrate. And so we got a second drink bottle and my dad designed a, a valve that we got 3D printed out of plastic and it's got a titanium bushing in it and it mounts right here on my seatbelt. So those two drink bottles come together right here on my seatbelt. And from that, that uh, valve, a tube runs into my helmet so I can stay hydrated but if my body needs that glucose, I can flip a valve and get some sugar to bring it up. Um, and I, I started this conversation talking about information and tools. And the continuous glucose monitor is definitely an important part of the data side and the information piece. The tools, I talked about the drink bottle and the valve. But I think having um, a good understanding of the insulin that I use and the, the insulin brands that have been on the car uh, since 2009, when I was racing in Indy Lights, the insulin that I use and actually take has been represented on the race car. And to me, that's been really cool and really special to represent. Yeah, that's really sweet that you're able to yeah, represent it and bring sort of more eyes to, uh, to such a topic. But I think that's so sweet about the monitor, man. You're like the the person that's most in tune with their car ever. Like You've got your data and its data on the same screen. So and, and the cool thing on that is, so I work with an exercise physiologist and I've been working with him since 2011 and, and we have terabytes of data uh, from the race that. car, but also from the, the lab. I go in and do physiology testing uh, in the lab every year, if not a couple times a year and being able to track how my body as an athlete has changed based on the, the aerodynamic load in the car, the weight of the car the horsepower, all of those things as the IndyCar regulations have changed has been really neat. Um, and the regression analysis on blood sugar and results. And there's, there's a lot of really cool data. And in fact, uh, he, as a PhD has published a few papers and written a book um, on the sort of physiology of motorsports athletes. Um, and I was one of his first cases uh, that he worked with studying drivers. Wow. Wow. Some serious stuff there. Serious stuff. But I'm afraid, I think that's probably where I'm going to have to tie up all of my questions there. But thank you very much for being on. But we have still got some fan questions to answer. So all of my uh, audience have been over on my Instagram or Twitter. If you guys aren't following those already, I'll make sure to leave a link to them both in the description below. But Charlie, sir, are you ready to answer some of the fan questions? I've got four for you today. Absolutely. I hope I can answer them. If okay, I don't cool. know, I'll just say I don't know. That's absolutely fine. That's no problem. Hopefully, I think you should be able to answer all of these. So at the Barefoot Pirate on Instagram asks, what are some of your pre-race rituals or traditions, if you have any? Uh, yeah, I, I would say I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. Um, and <laughs> part of that routine comes down to my diabetes management. And, and I always eat the same pre-race meal the same two hours before the race. It's plain grilled chicken breast, white pasta, some salad, some fruit salad, uh, and a lot of water. And I think that's probably the biggest thing for me, but I always like to have a few moments of quiet, um, either before or after I get my fire suit, it's not really critical to just visualize what the start of the race looks like, what pit stops look like, and then what I want the finish of the race to look like as well. That's that's really important for me to get 
the mindset right heading out to the grid to to climb in the car and go compete nice nice okay so some visualization and a good meal that's good it seems absolutely like a good, way to, good way to start a race um yeah at, and it's all like sorry, carb and protein counted as well so i know how many right, of grams course, yeah. of carbs i'm putting into my body so mm-hmm. i can take the right insulin for it exactly perfect perfect um at triple crown racing on instagram asks having spent your first full year at i really don't want to mispronounce this foyt is the name of the racing team correct I'm sorry. Do you not know who AJ Foyt is? I do. I do. I do. But I didn't okay. want to mispronounce it. You, you got terribly. it right. You, okay, you've good. correctly pronounced the first four-time winner of the Indy 500. Okay, you good. can call him by his nickname, Super <laughs> Tex. Um, just make sure you pronounce it right to his face because he okay. is a legend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. If I ever meet him in person, I'll make sure to do so. I've only recently got into IndyCar in the last sort of one or two years. So I'm trying to get my knowledge up uh, with the Indy Fanatics YouTube channel, but uh, it's proving difficult. So I I do apologize about that. So yeah, having spent your first uh, full year with them, do you feel they are a team on the up? And do you think you can score some podiums again, like you did in in your days at Chip Ganassi in 2021? Well, I think my plans aren't uh, announced yet. I would keep an eye out for that in the coming weeks. Things are pretty locked down. Um, The fact that Sebastian Bourdais is going to be a full-time driver in the 14 car, Dalton Kellett in the four, working with the engineers and the mechanics, they are definitely hungry to go win there. Um, I really enjoyed working with Larry Foyt, AJ's son, and and AJ himself. Uh, You talk about learning from a legend and, and... AJ talks, you listen, because there are things he definitely understands. Um, and, and he's probably forgotten more about winning at the Indy 500 than a lot of us will ever know. And they as a team, I think, are definitely on the up. They, they are rebuilding or rebuilt a little bit heading into last year, which with the pandemic and all of the delays and the lack of testing, was probably worse, the worst timing it could have been. Uh, but we did really well. A few top tens. We were on for a great results at Texas before a, a small mistake cost us uh, that in pit lane. And and then the Indy 500. I think we we ran pretty well based on you know the package we had. Um, and I do believe they are on their way up. And, and I, like I said, I really enjoyed working with them as, as a team and as people. So that's brilliant. So yeah, as everyone, as you said, everyone make sure to keep their eyes and ears out for any uh, announcements coming very soon there. Um, at will be 17 K on Instagram asks, what's the car that you've raced, which was the most difficult to drive? Ooh. Man, I think the the World Series car, if I don't know, back in, in 2007, it was so hard to get right. Like, it, it and it might have, honestly, it might have been even the, the Formula 3 Euro Series car in 2006 because of the Kumo tires. Um, you know, it, I think in IndyCar, the level of competition is extremely high, which is why it's so close. So you're looking for that last hundredth of a percent where the the tires and the spec in in the f3 europe and in world series man it was like if you didn't quite figure it out you were a million miles away Um, and and it's still and and part of that might have been my elevated blood sugar and and all part of that leading up to the diagnosis like I said, I really struggled with results that year and and I felt like it was just so hard to get right gotcha gotcha right no good answer good answer we move on to the final question at jdye the race guy on instagram asks serious question of the entire indycar field who would win in a hot dog eating contest hot dog eating contest yeah (laughs) well we spoke about him earlier um if we're talking this year's Indy 500 grid, uh, I think there's only one guy I would lean on to win a hot dog contest. Um, you know, 
you know, Mr. Montoya has been known to eat quite well. I don't know. Like we're all so competitive that if you were like, all right, <laughs> you're going to get a baby board Warner. If you can win this hot dog competition, we would all figure out how to do it. Like we would all yeah. like, we're just competitive. So yeah. <laughs> it, it's hard. Oh man, that's a hot dog eating. I'm uh, I am not Joey chestnut and that's a reference Probably you don't get, but on July 4th, there's always a hot dog eating competition. And Joey Chestnut is one of the best, uh, like competitive food eaters. I think that's the word, uh, here in the U S right. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So we're going to go with Montoya then on that one. Uh, I, I don't know. He, he like crushes some miles on the bike. So I'm sure if it was after like a century or two on the bike, he would okay. definitely need to refuel. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. No, that's great. So there we go. Juan Pablo Montoya is the, the hot dog eater. <laughs> well, with one, that. Um, one in a million. What? Oh, get out. <laughs> Incredible. Terrible dad joke from you there. So finish that one off. But um, thank you for that professional insight into IndyCar and all the racing knowledge that you do have. Thank you so much for, for giving up your time to chat to me. Is there anything you'd like to say, sort of a one line finishing sentence to the fans out there that might be watching or listening? Well, I know that the last year has looked different for the whole world uh, and especially race fans. We running the Indy 500 in August last year without fans was not only hard on the fans that couldn't be there, but hard on us as drivers and teams. I mean, we draw our energy from fans. And I know that, you know, for me in the Novo Nordisk car, it just didn't feel right. So I hope that we get on the backside of this and things return to whatever that new normal looks like and figure out how to go racing with, with fans in the stands. Because while it is a business, it is still a sport and we still love it. And we love having our fans there to enjoy it with us. Definitely, definitely. We need the atmosphere there. And yeah, sometimes I, I'm definitely going to come and watch an IndyCar race at some point, my good sir. So if I'm able to come and do it in the near future with COVID, I'm definitely going to come and cheer you on, Charlie, my good friend. So uh, again, thank you all so much for watching today's episode. If you did enjoy it, be sure to drop a like on it down below. I do really appreciate that. And subscribe to the Moto Meerkat channel as well so you don't miss any future episodes with some more incredible race styles and content creators and all that jazz. So otherwise, again, a massive thank you to Charlie for being on today. And I will see all of you Meerkats later. Goodbye, guys. See you later.